This morning, verse 5 and 6 tell us about a guy named Enoch. When I was younger, I used to go often in my brother's bedroom, and being the older brother that he was, he would often have the response when I'd walk through the door, What do you want? And as I think about that question, that's a good question that we had to ask ourselves when it comes to this life in general. What do you want? What's your master passion in life? What's the one thing you really live for? And then ask yourself, what motivates you? What gives you the energy that pushes you toward whatever goal it is that you have? On March 11th, 1830, a little British girl was studying her lessons with her private tutor, and she was studying the royal family of Britain, and as she was going through the genealogical chart in the book, she made an astounding discovery that she herself, this little girl, was to be the next in line for the throne. At first she wept, and then she looked up at her tutor and she said, I will be good. Her name was Victoria. She became Queen Victoria of England. In fact, there's the whole era, the Victorian era, named after her, But the knowledge that she would be queen motivated her in her present behavior. She had a goal and a motivation. Enoch's goal was to walk with God, and his motivation in life was to be pleasing, was to be found pleasing to the Lord. What a thought. The thought that we could please God, that mere human beings could bring pleasure to God. That ought to motivate us highly. Abraham Lincoln once said, you can please some of the people some of the time, you can please some of the people all the time, you can please all of the people some of the time, but you can never please all the people all the time. It's good to know that. Why try? Better to just please the Lord. In fact, who cares about pleasing people when you can be pleasing to the Lord? What a way to live and make it through this existence. The Apostle Paul said, We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. The person of faith does not care about people's opinions. He cares about one opinion, and that is the living God. And so the life of Enoch is summed up in these verses. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. One of the first things we discover as we examine the life of Enoch is that there's not much known about him, really. He's sort of obscure. He's a name in a list of names in the book of Genesis. In fact, there's only five verses in the whole Bible that even use his name. And most of them are genealogies. In fact, it's time that we go back to Genesis chapter 5 to read what the text says regarding him. Genesis 5 is essentially a genealogy. I don't want to read it all, number one, because... It would take too long. And number two is I can't pronounce all of the names. But in verse 15, Mahalalel lived 65 years and begot Jared. And after he begot Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years 
and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. It's about time. Now, we're not going to get into why they lived so long or what that means. It doesn't serve the purpose for this study. We covered that in Genesis. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And then we have the history of Methuselah. So Enoch was sort of an obscure fellow. I bring this up because there is so much sensationalism around the idea of faith. True, there have been famous people who have exhibited much faith, and they have great stories. George Mueller, who founded an orphanage in London, has awesome stories about faith, awesome miracles. And he became well-known. Hudson Taylor, of course, is well-known as one of the world's greatest missionaries. But a lot of times we Christians get the idea that Faith people are this elite group of turbocharged Christians that live on a different plane. They talk differently. They move their arms a certain way. Or perhaps a person of faith is someone who has a funny hairdo and blows on people. That's faith. But the Scripture bears out that ordinary, common individuals were extolled by God for their faith. And guys like Abel, guys like Enoch, are people that we can relate to. Because there's nothing that really stands out about them except for the fact that they trusted and believed in God. One thing we must never do is to look at people through stained glass windows, people in the Bible. The disciples, the prophets, were all people like you and me. They had the same emotions, the same fears, the same doubts. They grappled with the same questions, but they clung to the Lord. In fact, even Elijah, a man of miracles, the Bible says, was a man of like passions, or literally a mere man, a mere person. I'm telling you this because you may be unknown, but you are still important. And though other people may not know about you, you might be obscure. God knows about you. God knows your name. And you might be a person of great faith that God would worry to continue Hebrews 11. Put your name in it. Never mistake unknown for unimportant. If you do, you will serve only to paralyze the body of Christ because you'll start shrinking back and not becoming involved because you think, what do I have to give? I'm not important. Number two, you'll start elevating people on pedestals that God never intended to be on pedestals. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul speaks about the body of Christ having many different parts. Let me read a section to you in the Living Bible. It says, Some of the parts that seem the weakest and the least important are really the most necessary. Those parts that you don't see of your body, they're important, aren't they? Even though people don't ask you about them, they'll look at your hair. But how important is your hair? I'm having a bad hair day. 
Well, I'll tell you what, if you're having a bad spleen day or a bad liver day, it's a lot more important. You don't see those things, but they're awfully important. He goes on to say, yes, we're especially glad to have some parts that seem rather odd. We have some of those. So God has put together in such a way that extra honor and care are given to those parts that might otherwise seem less important. In that chapter, Paul contrasts two parts of the body that are seen and noticed and what we would say are important and two that are not seen and are not noticed. First of all, he says you have eyes and you have hands. Those are seen and we think of them as important, but you also have ears and feet. And though they don't get as much attention, they're important. And Paul says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, you can just picture his analogy, your foot starts talking. Because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? And if the whole body were hearing, where would be the smelling? You can't see your feet. Generally, we cover them up. You don't notice them. Until, of course, you take your shoes off, then you might notice them but not in a good way. It's like, oh, put those shoes back on again, please. But your feet are important. You don't shake feet. You shake hands, but you don't walk on your hands. You walk on your feet. You need it for stability. You don't usually notice a person's ears. You notice their eyes, but their ears are also important. God never writes solo parts for people in the church. We're all to work in harmony together, and all of us are important, though some of us may be obscure and unknown. Enoch was an unknown, but God extolled his faith. Don't you ever confuse fame for greatness. Don't let the press or television dictate to you what is great. In fact, prominence is a poor yardstick for greatness. If you want to see how great a person is, kick the pedestal out from underneath that person and see what's left. Enoch was just an ordinary guy who served an extraordinary God. He walked with God and he pleased God. The next thing I want you to notice about his life is that he lived during very wicked times. In fact, he lived during a time that's described in chapter 6, verse 3, For the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, and his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. This was right before one of the greatest judgments ever, the flood upon the world. And uh, look over at verse 5 of chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I made them. The point being this, God often calls people at the worst possible time, a time where there is a spiritual low point. In fact, most of the prophets of Israel were called to be spokesmen when Israel was at its farthest point away from God. Because light makes the difference when it's the darkest. It's prominent. It's seen. And so was the life of Enoch. He was an example of faith that stands alone. You see, folks, it's possible to live a godly life in an ungodly environment. 
Enoch had a lot of ungodliness around him, so much so that God was ready to judge the earth. It became progressively more wicked till finally God said, I've had enough. But it's possible to be godly in that kind of an environment. A lot of people say, oh, it's so hard to be a Christian these days. Well, it wasn't that easy for Enoch. What's his secret? Well, it tells us in these verses that Enoch walked with God. Now, what does that mean? It means he maintained a close, intimate relationship with the Lord. He stayed close to the Lord his God in the midst of a wicked environment. That's our secret too. There is no substitute for the presence of God, for living and moving and walking in the constant awareness of the presence of God. It makes all the difference in the world. great example of that is Acts chapter 4. The disciples were fishermen, but they were bold fishermen. And they start running around Jerusalem with a message. Everybody's ears perk up. These fishermen are brought before the highest Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. Educated, learned individuals. They knew more Bible verses put together than probably everybody in Israel put together. And the text tells us, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. That's all the difference in the world. They were unlearned, uneducated men, but they were with Jesus. They hung out with the Lord. I don't believe that the greatest men of God come from seminaries. I think the greatest men of God are people who hang out with God. Whether that's in a seminary or outside, it doesn't really matter. What are your credentials? I hang out with God. That was Enoch's credentials. He walked with the Lord. I'm not putting cemetery, I mean seminary down. Certainly you can learn a lot about God, but you must have intimate contact and relationship with God for your life to be really effective as the life of Enoch was. In fact, I think the greatest university is not a university of blackboards and books, but HSU, Holy Spirit University. That's where in the presence of God, God gifts you with the passion for God, with the words for God, to be a representative of God. Enoch walked with God. Now that's a word picture, walk. It's something all of us are familiar with. Most of us do it. It's not spectacular. People don't notice you walk. If you run or you jog or you bicycle, people will take more notice than if you're just walking. But to walk speaks of a steady motion. It's not in spurts, it's regulated and it's ongoing, and it speaks of direction. Go to a mall sometime and you'll notice the difference between walking and meandering. People who are walking have that look in their eyes, sort of like, did you get out of my way? I have a goal. There's other people who just sort of look around and walk about, looking from window to window. Whatever captures their attention, they'll move into it. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's meandering. A person who walks has a direction, has a goal, has a purpose, and stays at it to reach that goal. He walks with God. A walk with God doesn't mean a jog with God periodically or just a chat with God. Well, I had my Sunday morning chat with God. It's one thing to hear something Sunday morning. It's another thing to appropriate it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday and live in the light of God's presence all week long. That's a walk with God. 
It's always being in the presence of God. In the New Testament, we often see this terminology. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, Since you have received Jesus Christ as Lord, walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith. In Galatians, he says, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. John tells us in his first little epistle, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now, a person who walks with God is a person who walks a narrow path, and though he notices many others walking down the wide, broad path, and though many other people are following a different path, he doesn't care. He doesn't care that other people aren't with him. He only cares what God thinks as he walks. There may be other people on the path saying, Come join us. It's a lot easier over here. It's a wider path. It's a lot more fun, a lot more liberty. A person of faith doesn't find safety in the crowd. A person of faith is one who isn't conformed to this world, but he's transformed by the renewing of his mind. He didn't care if other people are doing it. There's a great story about a fly who wanted safety in a crowd. The story goes like this. Once a spider built a beautiful web in an old home. He kept it clean and shiny so that flies would patronize it. The minute he got a customer... He would clean up on him so the other flies would not get suspicious. And then one day, this fairly intelligent fly came buzzing by the clean spider web. Old man spider called out, Come in and sit. But the fairly intelligent fly said, No way. I don't see other flies in your house, and I'm not going in alone. But presently he saw on the floor below him a large crowd of flies dancing around on a piece of brown paper. He was delighted. He wasn't afraid. If lots of flies were doing it, so he came in for a landing. Just before he landed, a bee zoomed by saying, Don't land there, stupid. That's fly paper. But the fairly intelligent fly shouted back, Don't be silly. Those flies are dancing. There's a big crowd down there. Everybody's doing it. That many flies can't be wrong. Well, you know what happened. He died on the spot. Enoch walked with God. As I read this, however, it seems he didn't always walk with God. Something happened to change him. Look at verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years and had a kid, or he begot... Methuselah. There's nothing that's said of him walking with God until that point. The next verse says, After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. Now what happened exactly that caused him to start walking with the Lord? Well, we don't know. But it could be the simple fact that he got married and had kids. It could be that being in a wicked environment, now all of a sudden he has kids that he's raising up in a value system that's against God. He says, wait a minute. If I'm going to be of any value to them, I have to have my own foundation. I better get my own act together to be able to raise these kids to give them something solid. You know that we find a lot of parents come to Jesus Christ because their kids have a hunger and thirst after God, or they say, well, now that I have children, better take them to Sunday school. They need a foundation. And so they take their kids to Sunday school and the parent realizes, hey, I'm a hypocrite. 
if they learn about God and I'm teaching them morals and about Jesus, but I'm not living it myself. And often a person will say, I need Jesus Christ. Probably that's what happened to Enoch. He discovered the living God in an environment of wickedness after he had his children. We don't know for sure. The third thing about his life is that he was a prophet. Genesis doesn't tell us this, but it's something that God revealed to Jude, who wrote a little epistle in the New Testament right before the book of Revelation. And he talks about people who were God's spokesmen during wicked times. And he speaks about Enoch. And he says, Enoch prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on everyone, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch was a prophet of judgment. And no doubt he was resisted by his contemporaries as he preached this message. He was a prophet who gave a tough message. And that's true of us. God may call you to bear a difficult message for people to hear. The message of God isn't always a pat on the back and lovey-dove-dovey. Sometimes it's God loves you and has a plan for your life. He wants to be your Lord. He wants to take care of you. But if you reject Him, there is a coming judgment. That happens to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And one of the most loving things you can do for people is to tell them the truth. Enoch did. He wasn't afraid to identify sin and ungodliness for what it was. You know, there are many preachers who are afraid to do what Enoch did because they're afraid to offend people. I would be more afraid of offending God than offending people. It's been said that we are called to comfort the afflicted, but sometimes to afflict the comfortable. Hey, a flood was coming. Judgment was coming. And Enoch was there proclaiming it, that God is going to execute judgment on all ungodliness. I think it's time that we start putting the old, biblical, God-given terms instead of soft-pedaling the truth. Instead of calling it sin, we call it a mistake. Instead of adultery, we say an affair. Instead of cheating in business, we call it protecting our interests. Instead of pride, we say it's self-esteem. Instead of killing or aborting or death, we call it terminating a pregnancy. I think it was Shakespeare who said, A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Well, sin by any other name still stinks. Doesn't matter what you name it. And Enoch wasn't afraid to become unpopular with people. He wanted to please God and walk with God in the midst of an ungodly age. In fact, there's one great old sage who used to say, I like my sermons like I like my tea. Hot. Full strength. Undiluted. Uh, Enoch gave it to him, as we see in the book of Jude. That doesn't mean, of course, we're to go out of our way to be obnoxious. I know groups of Christians that try to be weird, and they succeed at it. They want to become obnoxious. They'll stand on corners and yell at people and pound the Bible and turn or burn and 
Now just tell them the truth. Tell them God loves you. God's a big God of grace who will sweep all of your sins away. All you have to do is trust in Him and believe in Him. But if you don't, then God is forced with the inevitability of judgment. Enoch did it. He prophesied. I think that he probably used his son to do that. What I mean by that is the name Methuselah has a profound prophetic meaning. It literally means, when he is dead, it shall come. When he is dead, it shall come. That's what Methuselah means. After Methuselah was born, 969 years later, the flood came. When Methuselah died, the flood came. Because it says that he lived 969 years. You see, as Enoch walked with God, God no doubt was revealing future judgment. And he predicted future judgment. And he said, when your son dies, that flood, that judgment's going to come. Can you imagine what that would do to a parent? Knowing that when my child dies, whenever that is, I may live to see it, I may not. But whenever that child dies, God's going to judge the world. Imagine every time that child got sick. You think, this is it. The judgment. Tell you what, it'd keep you on your toes, wouldn't it? If you don't know exactly when the judgment's going to come, you're going to be ready for eternity and have a light touch on the temporary. So it is for us Christians. We should be living in the light of the soon return of Jesus Christ. He could come in any minute. I hope you believe that. If you believe that and you're waiting for it, you live a pure life. So John said, He who has this hope of the return of Jesus in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Then finally, about his life, I want you to notice in verse 24 that Enoch did not die. That's one of the things that makes him very unusual. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now look at our text in Hebrews 11 once again. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. The verb here means to carry over or carry across. Or it could also mean a sudden transfer. God suddenly transferred Enoch from earth to heaven. He carried him over the threshold of death so that he didn't see death. He was here one minute and he was gone the next. He was on earth one moment and then he was in heaven the next. His walking with God was rewarded He didn't see that. There was a Sunday school who was teaching their children on Enoch one Sunday morning. And a little guy came home from school and told his mom that he studied about Enoch. And she said, really, tell me what you think happened. Put it in your own words. He says, okay, this is what happened. Enoch and God used to take a walk every day. They had a blast together, Mom. They'd go off walking for miles and miles. And one day, they got to walking and talking and walking and talking. And they walked so long and so far that God finally said, Enoch, we're so far away from your home and we're so close to mine. Come on in and stay. And so he did. I think that's a pretty good explanation, actually. God just took him. And this is predictive. It's a type of the believer who will be here when Jesus Christ comes for the church at the rapture of the church when suddenly we'll be taken, at least those who are alive at that time, 
As the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Some people upon the earth will be instantly transferred into heaven without seeing death. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall ever be with Him. Now that's His life in a nutshell. But also in the verse that we're looking at, we have the legacy of Enoch. By faith, verse 5, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. That was his legacy. He pleased God. Now, if you're going to make your mark, this is the best place to make it. That's the best thing that could be said of your life. He pleased God. If you want something great on your tombstone, he pleased God isn't bad. In fact, I bet Enoch had great sleep. He might have come home, spoke about Methuselah, gave those harsh words, that tough message, but he knew the judgment of God was coming. And as he settled down at night in bed, knowing that some of the people were angry at him, he thought, ah, but I'm pleasing God. That's the testimony that he had before God. An important truth that many of us overlook is this truth right here. And that is God does not exist to serve us. We exist to serve God. The universe is not a cosmic playpen just to fulfill us. We exist for God's pleasure. And that ought to be our motivation, our legacy, our testimony. My life is pleasing to God. Now, I know that it's going against everything this world teaches you. We become very people-centered instead of God-centered. You deserve it. You're worth it. That's what the commercials tell you. Go for it. But Enoch was very God-centered. He pleased God. In Revelation chapter 4, there's a great song that happens in heaven. All the angels of God and the saints of God sing to the Lord this beautiful song. And they say, You created all things, and for thy pleasure they were created. That's why you exist. That's why you breathe. Is to give glory to God. And if you want fulfillment, that will be your aim and your motivation to live. That's why we come here to worship. We come here and we sing worship songs, not because the songs make us feel good, but because God's worth it. We listen to sermons not because we want to be entertained, but we listen to sermons so that we might be instructed on how to give glory to God every day. We have a job and we go to work, not just so we can earn a living and get a paycheck and have food, because we can share the gospel with people and please God in that environment. We have children not just to fulfill our need for having children or for companionship, but we have children that we might instruct them in the ways of God and launch them out as ambassadors for God. Everything we do should be centered around pleasing the Lord. Jesus said, I always do those things that please Him. And the Apostle Paul said, Here's what I'm praying for you, that you would know the Lord and that you might walk worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him and being fruitful in every good work. You know, I think that Enoch was probably one of the most fulfilled, happy guys that walked in his generation. He probably went out whistling every morning. Because instead of the sense of frustration that comes from serving yourself, which always leaves you empty-handed, he knew that 
God's opinion counts. I'm pleasing the Lord. Now, before we scoot on, notice how it puts it. It says, before he was taken, verse 5, he had this testimony that he pleased God. He had a testimony. In other words, he had a witness. His life left or produced a witness to people that his life was centered around pleasing God. The reason I bring that to your attention is that before you can witness for God, you need to walk with God. He walked with God and he left a witness for God. As you walk and are in fellowship and in touch and in communion with God, your life will leave a witness. It will leave a testimony. But worship always comes before work. Walking always comes before witnessing. And so it was with the life of Enoch. Then look at verse 6. Simply verse 6 is the lesson of Enoch. It's a summation of his life. Without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now Enoch's life, as we've already seen, produces many lessons. What the author does, though, is he sums everything up in one axiomatic truth, one golden nugget, and that's this. Faith pleases God. Nothing else does. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Nothing else does. Your personality doesn't impress God. Your talent doesn't impress God. God didn't go, whoa, now you're so awesome. I just can't pass you up. In fact, you're so awesome, I've got to use you. No. Your talent without faith doesn't matter. Your talent offered to God by faith does matter. Your works or your religion doesn't impress God because oftentimes religion is antithetical to the gospel itself. It's a system created by man. It's faith that pleases God. Now, when you come to God, two things have to happen, it says. Number one, you have to believe that God is. And secondly, that He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. First, you believe that He is. I've had atheists tell me, well, I have never found God. Like the cosmonauts who went to the moon and they looked around and they said, we're here. And we looked at the moon and we looked at the earth and we looked at the heavens and we didn't find God. Well, they weren't looking for God. And atheists don't find God for the same reason thieves don't find cops. They're not looking for them. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. When it says you must believe that God is, it means more than, yeah, I believe in a supreme essence. It means that you believe that God is who He said He is, not who you think He is. You can't make up your own fashionable God. There's a book by J.B. Phillips called Your God is Too Small, and he describes gods that people make up. You might have become familiar with some of them. He says, number one, there's the grand old man God. This is the grandfatherly white-haired figure who sits in the clouds and smiles down on everyone and winks at their adultery and winks at their lying and winks at their cheating. After all, you're a product of your environment. I can't blame you. Then he said, people have the resident policeman God. This is the God whose primary job it is to make you miserable and to take joy away from you and to restrict you, which is a false concept of God, by the way. Then he said another God is the managing director God. This is the God of the deists who say God created the earth and then stepped back and watches it go crazy. But he's not involved personally. You can make up any God you want to, but you must believe that God is who He said He is. There's a lot of people who believe in the paranormal. 
the supernatural. The dangerous thing is that they only care about the force, not the source. They want some power endowment. But they never stop to ask, where is this power coming from? What's the source of it? I told you once how that when I was in radiology, I was called in on call one evening to the hospital to examine a lady who had abdominal pains. And so we brought her in for abdomen x-rays. And uh, as we wheeled her from the emergency room into uh, the radiology department, on her abdomen there was a stack of books. I thought, well, that's a problem. She's got all that weight on there. But actually there was a Bible. There was the teachings of Buddha. There was several different kinds of religious experience books. And she was grabbing, clutching them. Because she thought, I hope there's hope in one of these philosophies, one of these systems. She had faith, but it wasn't saving faith. She didn't believe God is who He said He is. She had some conglomerate concept of God. You must believe God is who He revealed Himself to be. Not only that He exists, but that He, notice, is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Which means you have to believe that God is personal, loving, and caring. A force or a power doesn't reward, does it? You can't walk with an essence. You can walk with a personal loving being, and that personal loving God will reward those who diligently seek Him. The Scripture says in First Chronicles, If you seek Him, He will be found by you. If you forsake Him, He will reject you forever. And Jeremiah said, you will seek me. Actually, the Lord said through Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So that brings us to the one question. Are you seeking God? Are you searching after the Lord? Do the ways of the Spirit interest you? Is it your master passion to serve and to please God? It was for Enoch. And because that was his passion, he walked with God in the midst of a crooked generation. Faith pleases the Lord. Faith pleases the Lord. Are you trusting Him? There's a song, an old hymn of the church, that actually is part of the um, song used on Dr. J. Vernon McGee's radio ministry that says, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can He say Then to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. God is a rewarder to those who diligently seek him and trust in him. Your life will be rewarded now and your life will experience ultimate reward as God takes you as He took Enoch. Father, we come as children who trust Dad. Without faith, we cannot please you. We believe that you are who you said you are. We also believe that if we seek you, will be rewarded. There will be a payoff. You'll answer prayers. Things will happen. And ultimately, we'll find our answer in you. You are our shield and our exceeding great reward, as you told Abraham. Lord, apart from Jesus Christ, people really don't seek God. 
We know that people seek fulfillment, but the Scripture says nobody seeks God, no, not one. And so, Lord, as you are seeking for people today, I pray that you'd find those who don't yet know Jesus Christ. You'd save them, they'd enter in by faith, and then they'd seek after you, Lord. Pursue you. Thank you for this walk of faith in Jesus' name. Amen.